Chapter 16 of The Bridge of History Over the Gulf of Time by Thomas Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 16 The Arch of Constantine the Great. What shall we call the fourth century? We can only call it by one name, unfortunately, the Arch of Constantine the Great. A man might as well doubt the existence of Constantinople as doubt the facts of history of Constantine. Yonder is the city still bearing his name, the city into which he admitted temple or church for no worship but Christian worship. A man might as well doubt the existence of the Arch of Constantine at Rome as doubt that the emperor lived and reigned, in whose honor it was erected and whose name it bears. A man might as well doubt the existence of the coins of Constantine as to doubt the facts of his history. Young men who hear me, if you know of any one who has a good collection of coins, ask for the coins of Constantine and mark them well. There are thousands of his bronze coins in existence, but it will be better to see the gold and silver coins, which are not so numerous. You will find that the earlier coins of Constantine have the pagan marks upon them, like the coins of the Kaisers. But when you come to the later coins of Constantine, there is the Christian cross. There is the labarum, or standard, which was borne by Constantine's armies, with the cross and also the monogram of the word Christ upon it. I suppose this Constantine, the first Roman emperor who openly patronized Christianity, was a good man, says some of my audience. I fear I must tell you very plainly you are under a mistake, my friend. I must tell you that, although Constantine was a clever man, a skillful general, and a sagacious statesman, he was a bad man, for he murdered his wife, his eldest son, and his nephew, and it seems that he would unhesitatingly have taken the heart's blood of a man or woman that dared to oppose his will. Then how came this bad man to patronize Christianity, you ask? The answer is, for political purposes, reasons of state, as we say. But could the number of professing Christians be so great at that time as to form a body of sufficient importance to attract the notice of Constantine and lead him to suppose he could strengthen himself by patronizing them? It may be asked next. Let us inquire of history. We will not take the enumeration from church historians. Their account might be questioned or suspected of exaggeration. We will take the account from the enemy's side, rather. Let us take it from the skeptical Gibbon, from his splendid decline and fall. He was an acute and tasteful scholar and a master of statistical investigation, and he assures us that at the time when Constantine first extended his protecting and patronizing hand toward Christianity, that is to say in the year 313, the population of the entire Roman Empire was 120 millions, and that the Christian population was about a twentieth part of the whole, that is to say, there were six million of professing Christians in the world in the year 313. And how came Constantine to think of patronizing these six millions of people, it will be asked? Let us look at his circumstances, and we shall soon be able to read his motives. Constantine became emperor at York, the Roman capital of England, on the death of his father Constantius Chlorus, who was one of four ruling emperors. For Diocletian had invented a new form of government, a government by four emperors, who should divide the empire along them, but act unitedly. To Constantius Chlorus, Britain and Gaul were assigned, as the fourth part of the empire, to be ruled by him. At his death the Roman soldiers hailed his son Constantine as his successor. But Constantine knew that none of the other emperors liked him, yet he was determined to hold imperial power. So he set out from Britain, taking with him as many soldiers as could be spared from the country, and marched through Gaul also, soon learning that he would have to fight for it as he approached Italy. 
he won a victory over the emperor maxentius and some of the christian historians would have us believe he adopted christianity because he saw the sign of the cross in the air and considered it the symbol and promise of victory but the true reasons why he began to patronize christianity were more worldly he needed military strength the forces he had were not sufficient to cope with the larger armies of the other emperors now he reflected on the conduct of a few christian soldiers which were in his army they were sober honest brave intrepid and he wished he could have more such moral material to work up in soldiers then again he learned all the way he came through gaul that in spite of the cruelest persecution the christians were increasing he discerned that the support of such people politically and the union of their sons with his army were very desirable things to bring about the decree at milan in the year three thirteen proclaiming full toleration for christians was his statesmanlike manoeuvre and it succeeded he persuaded licinius one of the emperors who had married his daughter to join him in this decree though licinius was not in earnest in his support of it diocletian retired from actual sovereignty and constantine was soon at war with the remaining emperor maximian the suicide of maximian left constantine and licinius masters of the empire but a deadly war soon arose between them licinius was killed and constantine became sole sovereign of the roman empire and master of the destinies of one hundred and twenty millions of people he now more openly and avowedly supported christianity but although he held the imperial power for twenty-four years after he issued that first degree of toleration he was not a baptized christian until a few days before his death yet as he was believed to be on the christian side even when he seemed to waver and that was often thousands who cared nothing about religion in their hearts affected to espouse it because it was the strongest side so that there soon grew to be more millions of professors i did not say possessors of christian religion constantine's wily patronage of the christian teachers also did much to strengthen his power while it tended to ruin the christian church spiritually and the more decided he became in uniting the religion with state the more he injured it it was indeed an evil day for christianity when the crafty constantine took it under his protection would that it ever remained under the protection of god alone whatever its professors might have suffered christ said to the roman governor when crucifixion was so near my kingdom is not of this world oh that his professed followers had always kept the solemn saying in mind the church and state are unnatural companions tie religion to state chariot and it becomes defiled by being dragged through the mire of expediency make religion co-rider with the state in the chariot and she loses the spirit of the cross amidst the smiles of adulation and the corruptions of human power and grandeur the change in the outward fortunes of christianity under constantine and his successors seemed to render the solemn declaration of christ a mockery under successive emperors it grew grand and when they encouraged the swelling pomp it grew grander still at length under the popes as we have seen in our journey over this bridge of history it became at once gorgeous and cruelly intolerant and murderous we are living in a time when nearly every circle of society in england is intent on the great question of the union of church and state i must declare myself a separatist it is not that i see nothing to love and nothing to admire in what we call our established church of england i know and love some of her pious ministers i honor her noble army of martyrs i look with wonder and reverence at her grand library of authors i love many of her printed prayers and i trust when i die her sublime burial service will be read at my humble funeral but i neither admire the wisdom nor honesty of her ritualistic sons 
nor do I admire the swelling style and titles of her chief officers, nor their political employment. I never think of the speeches and votes of the bishops in the House of Lords, but I call to mind the saying of an old Lincolnshire farmer, Philip Skipworth, one of the most radical tenants of the first Earl of Yarborough. Well worth you, Lord Bishops, he used to exclaim. I wish they would come out of the House of Lords and be oftener in the Lord's house. And as for the styles and titles of the spiritual peers, as they are called, where is the scripture warrant for it all? That popes all along have had the impudence to wear the highest style and title on their coins of the pagan priests of old Rome, and call themselves Pontifus Maximus, one does not wonder, but where is the New Testament warrant for describing an English Protestant bishop as the right reverend father in God, Samuel, by the divine permission, Lord Bishop of Winchester, etc., etc.? Pray, in what chapter or verse of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John do you read of the right reverend father in God, Peter the fisherman, by divine permission, Lord Bishop of Rome, primate of all Italy, etc.? In what chapter and verse of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John do you read of the most reverend father in God, Paul the tent-maker, by divine permission, Lord Archbishop of Tarsus, primate and metropolitan of all Judea, etc., etc.? In what chapter or verse of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John do you read of the very reverend father in God, Matthew the publican, Dean of Jerusalem, Canon of Jericho, and Rector of Caesarea Philippi. My friends, in this our journey so far we have never found real Christianity robed in worldly grandeur, but we have often found it lowly and persecuted in suffering, and thus resembling its divine founder. But let us keep our chief enquiry in mind. In the year 313, when Constantine began to patronize Christianity, it was not then 300 years old, according to the Christian belief, which was that its founder did not leave earth till the year 33. Now, the time of Constantine was a time of considerable civilization, and could not be much more difficult for the Romans to ascertain the truth of what was stated to have occurred in Palestine in the year 33, that is to say, but 280 years before, than it would be for us to ascertain what occurred in France or Spain 280 years ago. That is to say, in the reign of our Elizabeth, when the intercourse of Englishmen with those countries was so great, we have no difficulty in grappling the perfect reality of that period of history, and why should it have been less possible for Romans to realize the verity of the gospel history but two hundred and eighty years after the crucifixion? But we are bound to repeat our next question. Where did Christianity come from? How came six millions of people to be professing it in the year 313? How came those books of Christian authors? Lactantius, and Eusebius, and Athanasius, and Basil, and Gregory Nazanzen, and Ambrose, that have come down to us to be written in the fourth century. How often we might have asked similar questions respecting scores of writers while standing on the preceding arches of our bridge, if time would have permitted us. But were Eusebius, and Lactantius, and Ambrose, and the rest dreamers? Did Jesus of Nazareth never really live on this earth, never teach his doctrines, never perform his miracles, never die by crucifixion, never rise from the dead? Was the mind of the suitable Constantine under complete delusion when he presided over three hundred Christian bishops at the Council of Nice in 325, and when he was baptized as a Christian in 337? Is the religion we call Christianity simply a readaption to human credulity of the old fable of the sun? Let us again pursue our journey over the bridge of history and see if we discover the existence of Christ's religion on the arch before the arch of Constantine. End of chapter 16